Welcome to our podcast, Revival in Jesus' Way. Disciple making is Jesus' way to change the world. This is the one mission that his people should focus on. There is only one way, his way, to create lasting transformation. And God is calling his church to wake up. I'm your host, Tim Cahill. And I am Yin Xu. You're listening to episode 6, Spiritual Growth Doesn't Happen Through Masses. And this is our theory on church cliches. So church cliches are the half, uh, those half-truths which stop the church to become a disciple-making church. Now here is a definition of disciple-making church from a very, uh, a very good resource website, discipleship.org. So a disciple-making church is a church where disciple-making is the core DNA and culture of the church, where the average church member makes disciples to the fourth generation, and this disciple-making activity is regularly produced in significant and diverse streams within the church. And these streams multiply consistently into new churches. It's a long definition. Um, but I think this is really accurate. And according to this uh, definition, uh, because disciple-making church is Jesus' blueprint for church, we're not saying all the churches in the New Testament time, they are disciple-making churches, but Jesus and his apostles do have a blueprint, a standard for his church. That's why they write, they wrote those letters to, to correct churches. And also, uh, the data we got from uh, discipleship.org uh, through their research is in America, in U.S., less than 5% of the churches are disciple-making churches. So it means like some church, they, they can call themselves disciple-making church, but uh, there is a standard, there is a definition, you know, it's, uh, it doesn't, so obviously it's, it doesn't include the, uh, the churches who just have one or two months or even one or two years, like a new member course, and they call themselves disciple-making church. According to this definition, most of people in this church make disciples, and they make generational disciples, and they multiply um, at different streams, different levels. And that's why we're making this series. We really hope to, uh, to be used by God in a big way, because we believe those lines are so malicious, they're they're from Satan, and we have to use the biblical truth to review them, um, that his uh, his people can hear his truth and turn back to his way. So we we hope to have your support and to pray for us. Uh, we because we will uh, continue we will continue to make those content, and we will also hopefully to make different booklets according to the, those series. Mm, yeah, that's good. One, the, the cliche for today is um, spiritual growth does not happen through methods. So um, this cliche can come out in a few different ways that we've seen it. The, the main idea is that spiritual growth is something that that is kind of like this natural thing. It doesn't have to do with like methods or or these kind of work related things that you do like there's one way that it's kind of put, which is kind of like a cliche inside of a cliche. Spiritual things don't operate in a logical way. 
is one way of saying it. And uh, found this uh, article on CVN, which we like a lot of what CVN does, but there is this mindset that's especially strong in a lot of charismatic churches. But the quote from the article, and the article is, faith starts where logic fails. And the quote is, faith is the opposite of logic. In all the Bible stories where there was great faith, logic was disproved. There was no room for logic. Where mountain-moving faith exists, faith takes over where logic can no longer tread. Um, so that you kind of see a little bit of this idea there, this idea that spiritual things operate in a different realm, under a different understanding than logic, than the reason that we're used to in this world. There's somehow we can figure things out with our mind, and the impression is that this logic is, is something very humanly. It's us being able trying to figure things out, and then faith or spiritual things start outside of that realm. And it, it you know you can kind of see the good in it again with a lot of these things where it's it's trying to glorify God almost in the same way that um, we've talked about other things in previous episodes where you can kind of see that they're trying to give credit to God where, well, it's not this logical thing that people can figure out, but it's this godly thing that's beyond our logic. So stop trying to figure it out because it's, it's above you. It's beyond you. So there's some good to it again, but it doesn't seem to match the biblical evidence. And we'll talk about that here in a little bit, that the Bible has some specific things, some specific ways that discipleship is done. We talked about an end goal on the last episode, that there's definitely an end goal in being like Christ, that's a solid, specific thing, you know, a logical thing I think we can think about. We can think about who Jesus was. We can think about his characteristics. And in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, instructed us to teach others to obey all that he had commanded him. And they said, you know, there's a, you could make a list. You could go through the Gospels and write down you know, one, two, three, four, and on and on, and write down all of those things. But there would be a not endless, is the way you put it, in list that would exist. And you could read it out, and you could think about it. Um, a second way that this is put is the goal is to create love and generosity. And actually, this is something we've heard specifically um, pastors say. And these are abstract, unmeasurable sorts of things. So for these things, you, you can't measure it. You can't, you can't hope to produce it in some way. This, this is the end goal of discipleship. So it's very fuzzy. It's very spiritual. It's very beyond us in, in trying to produce. And hard to control. Hmm. And it's, uh, uh, how do I say, it's the measurable character goal. Hmm. And we understand why people thinking that way because um, you maybe you you try in your will like try hard to to love and then you always find someone more loving than you and then and and all the more challenging your goal is not to be loving as that person your goal is to be as loving as Jesus hmm. and so it's just something like you don't re- even want to think about hmm. and I think there's a point too that love itself is a hard thing to measure in some ways if you were to say how much do you feel love for that person especially and i'm kind of leading the question a little bit there by saying how much do you feel love because love is not just a feeling but um you know it's hard you can't you can't pull it out and say how much do you feel how generous do you feel 
you you can't take a a ruler to that how generous someone feels in their heart, right? So like that that's there's somewhat of you can see some some logic there, some where that idea kind of comes from. Um, real quick, a third way, and this is similar to the second way, but it's a quote that I've heard is head knowledge can't cause heart change, and the idea there is that you can't. Just through knowing, just through doing, using materials, just through reading, just through thinking, you can't change someone's heart. You can't, you can't make real changes in a person's character and who they are based on head knowledge. Yeah, and I think we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that one when we get into the biblical evidence here in a minute. Number four is God will just do it, and this is often the on the other side. What people are thinking is. God's just going to do it. You know, he's he's God. Once the person is in his hands, he's going to accomplish it. You know, don't have a small view of God and think you need to come up with methods in your flesh. And you, know, you hear this in fiery sermons sometimes um, when they're talking about evangelism or the uh, preservation of the saints. You know, God has them in his hands and he will see us through until the end. You know, stop trying to think your way through it. Stop trying to stop worrying so much. Stop this and. Um, there, again, there's something good there, but then if the biblical evidence says that there there are things that we're supposed to be doing, then we need to think a little bit deeper about that. Because if we're trying to glorify God in ways that he does not want to glorify, he doesn't see as glorifying him. Because if he's putting it one way, saying, hey, you need to do this, these things, you need to think about these things in order to grow, in order to go further, then we should take God's word over what our feeling tells us would glorify God more. And then a big one that comes up with a lot of these, at least it was a big one for me, is the idea that knowing where you're at in the process, checking up on yourself is not humble. And part of the idea in this comes from just the idea that pride is such a big sin. You know, pride is one of the sins that talk, is talked about most in the scripture. You know, Jesus talks about pride a lot. C.S. Lewis said that pride is the the mother of all sins. It's the it's the main sin. You know, it wasn't it's not sexual immorality or all those things. It was actually pride. You know, that caused Adam and Eve even to sin against God. Um, and so we don't want to fall into pride by beginning to measure ourselves more highly than we ought to. So the idea here, and I've heard even preachers that I really like who I think are really solid in a lot of other ways. To say, hey, don't think about where you're at in your spiritual journey. Because that's because that will build your pride. That'll give pride a little root in you that'll begin to spring up. And I mean, the idea that sin can take root in a small way and then spring up is a legitimate fear. But then the way that we avoid pride is not by producing a false humility. And again, I would go back to the last talk when we talked about Romans twelve three and we talked about what real humility is, and it's taking a real stock of who we are and, and not holding the punches in a way, really putting our, our the sin out there, the things we're working on out there, but also putting the real growth out there. You have to have both sides for real humility. So you mean this uh, side cliche is it will be considered to be not humble to see yourself have progress. Mm. In the progress of being loving, uh, in the progress of um, having unity, those things, and then you say, "Oh, I, I, I do have some progress. I, I am better than last year. 
It's like, oh wow,、mm. you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> say to say anything other than saying I'm a depraved sinner, God help me. In in some people's minds, that begins to seem like pride, that we're stepping outside of what we ought to say in front of God, that we're trying to take some credit for ourselves based on some quality that we have within ourselves. Even if that quality is something that God has been working in us to produce,、mm-hmm. so yeah, that's the but that's the kind of this is a kind of mixed up part way of the cliche because it's mixed with some real kind of a good word and that's avoid pride. Don't say these things in a way that you're you're boasting. But then also it's it's very um it's a very nasty kind of root. Of something, if you let it sink in, and you say, "Well, I'm never going to think about my state," because then also you will prevent yourself from growing. You'll prevent yourself from doing what Scripture says we should do, and that is to take an honest stock, both of the bad things and of the good things. Yeah. So、um, now I kind of want to shift, and what what does the biblical evidence actually show? We get to A. You know, we receive Christ. There's a B. We know there's a B. Um, like we had talked about last time, and that B is becoming like Christ. But does the biblical evidence show that it's kind of just mysterious in the middle? We shouldn't really think about it too much. There aren't methods and things you can do. You just kind of get there. And no, I don't think the biblical evidence shows that at all. One example that came to mind was with Jesus、um, and his raising up of the twelve, or really the eleven, because Judas betrayed him and did not go along. With、um, the the training plan, in a way you might say.、Um, but one thing I like to ask when I give talks, the talks that I've given about discipleship, or when I point it out to someone that I'm walking through the scriptures with, is、uh, in John 17:4, and I'll ask the question: When did Jesus first say it was finished? It is finished. And most people would always say,、uh, you know, even I've had people shout out in the Audience, like, oh, on the cross, Jesus said it's finished on the cross because he finished the the work of achieving, you know, our salvation of of dying for our sins and our sins were paid for and that's finished. And that's that's one point, that's one place, but that's actually not the first time Jesus said it. So John seventeen four, Jesus says he's about he's beginning this prayer for his disciples, and this is、uh, in his last days in Jerusalem, and he says. Father, I've glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And again, this is before he was on the cross. This is before he died for our sins. This is before any of that. He says, "I've accomplished the work that you gave me to do." So it means that there was something very important that he had already accomplished before dying for our sins. That was part of this task that God had given him to do. And as we see, as as you read on in John 17, he's talking about. Having trained the disciples, having built them up in these three years, he had achieved the goal of training them up to be disciples. He had reached goals. He had made it to real points, and then he could say, just honestly and and without any kind of fake pride or anything like that, that you know that he had accomplished it, that he had finished it. Because、and、if we reach from A to B naturally, then he really didn't need to do those things. When、mm-hmm. when he was with the disciples, he can be more relaxed and maybe not just limit to twelve. You know, a big crowd go here and there because,、um, according to、um, nowadays, some of the modern theory, it's like 
Um, because after that, after uh, Jesus died and then they received the Holy Spirit, everything will be just mysteriously naturally, mm. you know. So really, that 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 would be the right thing to do. Mm, exactly. And I've kind of worked out a little. There's you can kind of see some of the pattern of what Jesus was doing too. So at the beginning in the Gospels, you see him doing a lot of teaching, both to the crowd and privately to his uh, inner circle, to the twelve disciples. And then you see him going about and demonstrating these things. He's healing the sick, he's preaching the gospel, and he's he's praying and he's doing these things. And then you see him have them do it. You know, he teaches them to pray. He uh, and then he has them. He he'll ask them to pray at different times, like in the Garden of Gethsemane. Or the bigger examples that stand out is when he sends them out to go and preach the gospel, and heal the, he tells them to heal the sick and to go from town to town. So basically just to go out and do exactly what he was doing. And so he's first teaching, and then he's demonstrating, and then he's having them do it. And then finally he commissions them, now when they're ready, to go out and do those things themselves. After he's, he's done this kind of training cycle, this training process with them. Hmm, yeah, I mean, and specifically in that prayer area, you see him praying in a public way. He'll even say, for their sake. And I never understood that whenever I was younger. That he always said, it's not for my sake that I pray these things. Like at, when he prays for Lazarus to rise from the dead. He said, I pray that for these here so that their faith might be built up. And then he teaches them to pray after they come to him and say, Lord, teach us to pray. Because they've seen him praying in this way. And then later he begins to call on them to pray about things. So we see this pattern really taking place and working really well because you see the disciples just take off. They receive the Holy Spirit and Acts and they are ready for ministry. They are ready to bring the message of the kingdom of God into Judea and in all of the surrounding regions. So this is not an exhaustive list. Uh, we, we might miss something. We just want to uh, put those, some of those big methods that he always used to to present this biblical evidence. Mm. So uh, here next, we do want to touch touch on knock down on uh, one big side cliche, as we want to talk about those uh, those so to speak like softer skills, those those characters softer skills like how um, people will say like well uh, well our our goal is not to make disciples who just who, who read Bible all the time, who know who read Bible. Uh, you know, it, it, it's kind of like it's uh, hypocritic mm-hmm. because we, we want people, well, and by the way, those scribes and uh, Pharisees read the scripture all the time, and that's what they do. Definitely, we, we shouldn't do their way. And what we do is we want to make people, you know, really love the Lord and really love people. And so it's about loving, always say other things like uh, unity, uh, humble, all those like character things. Like how does what what you say the method, um, what, what I mean, Jesus say the method like to uh, make disciples send them out uh, through uh, teaching, demonstrating, uh, and pray. He pray always, right? Um, those can do with that. Mm. You know, so so sometimes when when we t- when we talk to people about discipleship, uh, disciple making curriculum, 
or、uh, start to have a daily quiet time,、mm-hmm. and people immediately to say this this is um this is discipline. This is a, like a rigid nerdy thing. And what we want is you know. So okay, so you you get the point. And one of one of the first I want to quote is、uh, Romans eight five to six. It says, "For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh; but those who live according to the spirit, set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace." And also a little earlier, Romans five four says. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Well, both both are difficult scriptures, I guess. But what I want to say is about repetition, about when you、uh, when you do something, when you do things one time. For us Christians, is、um, one time you do according to the Holy Spirit. You hear God. And you practice one time. That's one time's victory. But then, when you have practiced another time, another time, multiple victories, that really create a habit.、Mm. So you start to begin from, let's say, someone want to practice the goal to love God, because、uh, the goal of loving God is you. Sh- you should love God in the perfect way, because God loves you in the perfect way, and you should love God as Jesus loved God. So. You know, you you get a meaning. So it's like、uh, Deuteronomy six five, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind.、Uh, look at those parts, and some some place has、uh, with all your mind. So if I understand, like like heart is your your feeling and your mind,、um, you know, and your soul, like your character, your temperament. And then、uh, your mind is like your.、Uh, I understand mind is like the physical mind. So you use the things you do to love、mm. the Lord. So it's so think about this is all someone can have as a human being. Your whole being, your inside and your outside. That's the everything you have. So, but suppose we want we need to achieve that goal, and, and we we should achieve that goal, but. How do you get there? Do we like,、um, like for example, if I train myself, do I each day I get up and just repeat this scripture, or do I say like, like, oh,、uh, I just like I I will really love you. I will just love you, you know.、Um, or maybe I I record, you know, the the stories in in Bible and just like, oh, see, God is so good, and then we just should do that, you know. And usually those wouldn't work. And、mm-hmm. after several years, you find out that it's just still in a similar level, or maybe you already give up. But we are not made in this way. Like God already invite us and give us new life through Jesus' life, and so we come into relationship with Him. And when we build up a relationship with people, what do we do? We begin to talk to that person. And like a new friend, we begin to make room, make space for that person. So it's just like to God. That's why we we begin to say that 
uh, that, that's why we usually help new believers to say, can you spend time with God? Um, try 15 minutes consistency is better than you, you do something one day and then you stop for several days because that's how we form habit. Any habit we form in this way. And any people who have experience in weight loss, I think, that, that, that people would just know that it doesn't work. You just eat like healthy food three days and you give up and you suddenly have a big cheesecake and then you go on. So this is like the thing. You help people to start with every day, 15 minutes at the same time. You know, you, you gave that time to God and then you create the friendship, the daily thing. And then, because I remember when I, one time in China, when I gave this workshop on quiet time, one guy, one young man suddenly uh, stood up and pretty angrily expressed his opposition because he said, well, the Bible asks us to pray always. Why do you teach us to have this 15 minutes and then it's a rule, it's, it's a discipline, then you just like Pharisees, you know, it's legalism. But think about it, if people, that's the goal. I mean, that's the goal. Mm. Uh, actually, in our later walk, 15 minutes become 30 minutes and become one hour. Because mm. you, when, you, when you more and more love that person, you, your relationship is stronger and stronger. You just want to know that person more. And then at other times, like just very naturally when you um, have something in your mind, you will have like a short prayer. Mm. And that you more and more close to the pray always, but it always start from small. So, mm. so I think you get it. So like love is the same thing. Like you, a loving person. Mm. I remember when I first began to help people, then you know a huge step for me. Like to to meet someone one time is a huge step for me to share gospel with someone. Sit down, um, you know, um, and and to explain something out to that person, scriptures out to that person. That's a big thing. But then after that, I think, okay, that person believes in Christ, then I should visit her again. And then visit her again. And then write her letters. And then send, send her um, encouraging text and all that. Mm-hmm. And then, oh, uh, someone's, she's sick. Wow, I maybe uh, make some healthy food for her. Mm-hmm. And then uh, begin to pray for her families with her. You know, all those interactions and then your loving level improved than before, than six months ago, for example. And then you begin to, wow, I can invest into another lady too, as I continue to invest to this lady. And then more and more, and then uh, it become a habit. Mm. It become a habit to each time go to church to seek people who are thirsty, people who need help. Um, even it's just that after Sunday, that, that little time, I can help one person. My mentor always tell me, like, think about it. Like, you go to church, even that several minutes after the church, you can even just speak one sentence to bring blessing to that person. And you can pray. Mm-hmm. God will make that happen. And then you begin to invest in many people. And until now, I think my nothing level is much higher than 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's it's just become a habit. I I go go everywhere to seek people who need help, to seek people who 
need to need a gospel and to see Christians who need growth is such a natural thing. Uh, but in this process, is you have a lot of challenges, thousands of uh, opportunities for you to practice self-denial. Mm, and and it made me think of um, when you talked about the guy back in your hometown who talked about it being like legalism and those things. It reminded me of what I always try to share with the guys. Um, in Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted on streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither, and all he does, he prospers. So it says that in Psalm 1 that his delight is in the law of the Lord. And I think that's where the difference comes. You know, there's this kind of pharisaic way of of kind of pursuing being right in front of God. There's like, you know, a checklist that the Pharisees had, a very specific, you know, list of laws and things they were supposed to follow. But I think the biblical model is that we're called to delight in the Lord and then to act on that delight. So like in Psalm 1, you see them talking about the word specifically and meditating on it day and night on a just a regular, consistent. On yeah, on you're meditating on it. You're bringing the word in day and night is what the psalm is encouraging us to do. And it's it's saying, you know, that because that person's delight is in the law of the Lord, that they're happily, joyfully taking on those things. And then it it draws this picture that, that I really like. And if you are ever trying to help someone, you can also draw this as a picture and draw a picture of a little tree, um, you know, with leaves and everything. And then it's uh, roots at the bottom going down. And then I draw like a stream there. And the for this person, that those roots going down deep into the word is providing that life up. And like you said, it's producing those fruits like love and gentleness and kindness and those things are they're being produced but from something practical something that this person is doing they're meditating on it day and night on the word they're they're praying they're bringing time in front of God where they're praying into a regular way in a way they're building their faith and trusting in him and it's producing this fruit from them just filling themselves up with the right sorts of things with God's word with God's presence with with these different things that these disciplines are getting at, with the fellowship of believers, being around people who also love Jesus and are encouraging each other, stirring each other up to move towards him. Um, and then one kind of cool statistical evidence of this as far as being in the Word is uh, the Center for Bible Engagement, which is this really great organization that is is all about trying to get people more into God's Word. And they've done a study... And it's called the power of four because they did a study that shows that less than four, there isn't less than four days a week, someone being in the word, there isn't too much of a difference. But once you start to get four or more times in, in the word during the week, there's this huge jump. They said a 57% chance from the studies they did and talking to people and surveying people who have these different frequencies of reading and being in the word. And they said people who are in the word at least four times a week are 57% less likely to engage in habits like sex outside marriage, gambling, or porn. 
So these these nasty habits are being avoided because of something that's happening to these people's character when they're in the word on a regular basis. And again, it can be there's even a statistical way of showing that. So I think that there's a lot of evidence, both statistical and just in the word in general, that shows that using methods, using things we can kind of break down to a solid thing to say, hey, I want to help someone to begin to be in the word three or four days a week. And then eventually, as they begin to just love their time with God more, I want to see that person begin to have a regular daily time in the word. I want to see that person, you know, being able to know how to pray to God. There's a specific point. And I want to see that person be able to pray regularly on a daily basis that they are in front of God. That's a that's a good that's a goal to meet. And if that person is able to delight in it, move towards it and then get there, they will see spiritual. It's not a question of maybe they will, maybe they won't. If they're getting in front of God more and they're delighting in it, I it's a, like a money back guarantee is the way the word puts it a lot of times. And delight yourself in me. I will give you the desires of your heart. And that's a promise. When we see promises in scripture, there isn't there isn't ambiguity about it. But if a person does these things and they and they delight in it, then they will see fruit from it. That's that's the guarantee we have. So actually, not only our methods is there a biblical method, but I would say a biblical method is required. There needs to be these things in our lives because that promise is a two-way promise. It doesn't just say, God will give us the desires of our heart. It says, delight yourself in the Lord. And so th- these physical ways of delighting ourselves in the Lord, of getting closer to Him, of moving closer to Him, have guarantees of being paid off and God's presence and growth and things like that. Yeah, and this is a great imagery because I was just thinking about our garden. And, um, you know, it's, there are tangible ways, like even, even though I cannot say I guarantee like this year's wood tree, a uh, local tree will produce like a really sweet fruit. But how do I say like most certainly if we, I know if I don't water him, mm-hmm. what won't happen? And, uh, also even more quickly is all the chai. If <laughs> that, that's why if, um, if that day is Tim's uh, turn to water them like twice a day, if, if he didn't do that, I would scream because I would go out to find out um, they are half deaths, and then the second day, it will, they will surely die. Mm-mm-mm. I think we can kind of end here. We are continuing this series on cliches. Really glad about the progress we're making. Like Anna said, we, we want to see churches become disciple-making churches. And I think that only happens when we can let go of a lot of these these unscriptural kind of ways of looking at discipleship and the things around growth. And we begin to allow ourselves to look at the scriptures again and to see what they say, what God says about spiritual growth. 